right, all right, that's enough. You don't have to like each other that much. That's great. I think I told some of you on Sunday, I had so many people who don't go to the Oasis at Elliot and Megan's wedding who said, man, you guys are the huggingest bunch of people I ever saw. We do like each other. That's a good thing. Hey, tonight, before we get into the message, I'd like you to be praying about something. I want to share this with you tonight. And then I'll share it again for a couple weeks. But you guys are the first group that gets to hear this tonight from an, uh, in an official basis. We're at a point in our building team and in our leadership of our church where we feel like we have a piece of property that's viable enough that we want to bring it to your attention and have you begin to pray about it with us. Um, so I'm going to describe where this is. So if any of you in the next day or week or something want to ride by, if you want to stop and you want to pray over that piece of property, that's okay by me. Uh, but, but I'm going to describe from here how to get there, okay? And, and one of the things I like about this property is it fits most of the criteria that we have been looking for. And one of those criteria that was important for me that I asked God for was that it wouldn't be too far from where we're presently meeting. Because I didn't want people to use the excuses like, well, you know, I could come to Basha, but I can't go there, you know. Nobody will be able to say that because it's only a couple miles from here, okay? So, if you go over Riggs this way and head west, okay, from where we are now, and you go over to Gilbert Road, and you go north on Gilbert Road to Chandler Heights, And then at Chandler Heights, you head west and go that direction. And you go four to five-tenths of a mile on your right-hand side or on the north side of that Chandler Heights road is an eight-acre piece of property for sale. Okay? So let me say that again. You go over Riggs here to Gilbert. You go north on Gilbert up to Chandler Heights. You go west on Chandler Heights about a half a mile, and it will be on the north side. Please be in prayer for us about that piece of property. It's, that, it's gotten that serious that I wanted our people to begin to take a look at it and pray about that. All right. We got three more weeks and we are done the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20 tonight. I shared with you last week, we are looking tonight at what I believe is the most unique time in human history. The millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. There will not be another time on this planet like that 1,000 years. And not just for the obvious reason that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, but even because of the makeup of the people who will be part of that kingdom. And some of uh, what the Bible teaches about that time is contained in Revelation chapter 20. Because last week, 
we saw the second coming of Jesus Christ and his establishment, if you will, of his kingdom on earth. And so the first thing that we see John informing us about here in chapter 20, about this now unique 1,000 year period, is first of all, the restraining of Satan. Notice what he says in verse 1, Then I saw an angel descending from heaven, the place of worship, holding in his hand the key to the abyss, that we've been introduced to that place before in the book of Revelation, a preliminary place of incarceration for, uh, for, th- for the angels uh, who sinned, and a huge chain. He seized the dragon, and notice Satan is given four names here in verse 2. He's called the dragon. We were introduced to him earlier in the book of Revelation, which speaks of his ferociousness, of his fierceness. He's called the ancient serpent because John wants to take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis and remind us that he's been opposing God and the will of God and the program of God ever since if you will, the beginning of time. He's called the devil, Diabolos, uh, the accuser uh, of us, the saints of God, the one who divides not only men from God, but men from other men and destroys relationships. And then he's called Satan, the adversary. Again, the one who opposes. All these titles uh, or names of Satan. And notice, he tied him up. He fastened him in these chains for a thousand years. Now again, we don't know exactly how this takes place because Satan obviously is a spiritual being. He can't literally be tied up in chains. But what God obviously can do is God can restrain Satan anytime he wants to. And that's exactly what's happening here. God is for the first time in history, okay, He is basically removing any influence that Satan or the demonic world can have for this 1,000 year period. It's one of the things that makes this 1,000 year period unique. There will be no demonic or satanic influence in this 1,000 year period. Satan will be completely removed off the scene and he will not be allowed by God to influence on earth during that 1,000 years. The angel then threw him into the abyss, verse 3, and locked him, shut it, and sealed it, or secured it, so that he could not deceive the nations until the 1,000 years were finished. By the way, a key word there, deceive. It's Satan's modus operandi. He is always leading people astray and leading them from truth into error. Satan does not operate in the realm of truth. He always operates in the realm of falsehood. That's why Jesus said, Satan is a liar, he's a father of lies, he invented lies, he's been lying ever since the beginning. And Satan is always attacking the truth of God. That's why Satan's primary target, besides the saints of God, is the Word of God. Satan will always attack the Word of God because it is truth. And Satan, again, doesn't live in the realm of truth He lives in the realm of what is false, what is a lie, what is deceptive. But he will be not allowed to deceive anyone on earth during this 1,000 years. After, though, these uh, things, he must be released for a brief period 
of time. And this word must is an interesting and important word because it means a necessity established by God. God has his reasons for restraining Satan for that 1,000 year period and God has his reasons for letting him loose after that 1,000 years uh, on earth. Now, I want to say this in reference to this piece of scripture tonight. I want us to understand as Christians tonight that the Bible clearly teaches that up till this point in history, Satan cannot be restrained by us. He cannot be bound by us. We do not have the authority to do that because that's not part of God's will at this point. The Bible never teaches Christians can restrain or bind Satan. Our Job, if you will, our responsibility as Christians, the Bible clearly teaches, is not to restrain Satan because God is allowing him to have influence, if you will. What the Bible teaches Christians to do is to resist Satan, not to restrain him. Resist him. Think of these two verses in the New Testament. James 4, 8. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we can't lock him away. We cannot remove his influence. But what God does want us to do as Christians is to learn in God's power, in the power that we have through Christ and through the Holy Spirit, through his word, to resist him. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Even in that verse, God doesn't say, oh, I'm going to remove Satan so that he can't bother you. No. In fact, the Bible teaches just the opposite. He's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But the very next verse, verse 9 of 1 Peter 5, 9 says, Resist him, strong in the faith. And those words, resist, same Greek word in James 4, 8 and in 1 Peter 5, 9. It is a word, very interestingly, that has the concept of where we get our English word antihistamine from, believe it or not. So you all, so basically what it's saying is we can, through what we should be doing as Christians, building up a resistance to the influence of Satan, you see, uh, causing the effects. That's what an anti, obviously, histamine does. It negates the effects, if you will, of histamine in our system. And, and so this Greek word about resisting is saying, look, Satan is going to be out there. God's not going to lock him away until this thousand years. That's just the reality of it, okay? But what God does give us the ability to do is not to restrain Satan, but to resist him. And that's our responsibility today, you see. Before this time, Satan will not be bound or chained. It is part of God's will and part of God's program to allow him within God's sovereignty and boundary to be able to move and do what he does. Actually, the activity of Satan in in ways that we don't even understand and in ways the Bible reveals can bring glory to God. That's a whole nother message. Let's move on. Verse four. 
After we see the restraining of Satan at this period of time, which can I just say, we should all be hallelujah about that, right? I mean, to think that we're going to live on earth for a thousand years as God's people and not have any satanic or demonic influence, that's a good thing. That's a hallelujah. Next, the reign of the saints. And you and I, again, are in these verses. Then I saw thrones. And seated on them were those who had been given authority to judge, to govern, to rule in this divine administration of Jesus Christ. You and I, folks, our destiny as God's children is to rule and reign with Christ on the earth. That is taught throughout the Old Testament, taught throughout the New Testament, and then especially taught here in the book of Revelation. And that's for all of us. And this is why I try to inspire and encourage and motivate Christians to live a faithful life for Christ. Because how we live on this earth, as we talked about last week, with what kind of wedding, in a sense, garments we are creating here on earth, how we live our life here as a Christian, is going to determine what place, what role, what responsibility we have in Jesus' divine government, if you will, on earth one day during this thousand-year reign. Notice all the ones who will be a part of that. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded or executed because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. These had not worshipped the beast or his image and had refused to receive his mark on their forehead or on their hand. They came to life and reigned with Christ for one thousand years. So part of the people that will be ruling and reigning with Christ are tribulation saints, those who have died Obviously, during the tribulation, and they will be resurrected. But folks, not only are tribulation saints ruling and reigning with Christ, we've already learned in the book of Revelation that the church, you and I, when the rapture takes place, or when we die and then are resurrected one day, we're going to be part of His divine administration as well. And then the Old Testament saints are going to be part of this as well. So all the saints of all time up to this point are going to rule and reign with Christ. Again, I want us to, to, to get this tonight. Our destiny from God as He wants us to rule and reign. That was always His intent when He created Adam and Eve in the first place. He gave them dominion over all creation. He wanted them to rule over this. When sin entered the world, man lost his ability to be able to rule and truly have dominion over this earth. And so, God, through Christ, is going to restore that one day through what Jesus Christ did. And now God is going to give us the opportunity in our glorified state to be able to rule and reign with Him. Keep your finger there and go back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want you to see what Paul says tonight to the Corinthian church and how it fits in with what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 20. Because most people don't ever associate these two passages together, but actually they fit perfectly because in this passage, Paul's talking to the Corinthians about, you know, lawsuits and stuff, but he's also giving great information, uh, revelation from God about the fact that our future destiny as God's children is to rule and to reign. And he's sort of, if you will, chastening or chastising the Corinthians because he's saying, you guys in Corinth, in your local church, you can't even 
you know, decide trivial things. You, you can't even settle disputes between Christians. He says, don't you realize one day to the Corinthians that we, because of what Jesus has done for us, we're going to rule the world with Christ. So notice what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. When any of you has a legal dispute with another, does he dare go to court before the unrighteous rather than before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world, govern, rule, be part of the divine administration of Jesus Christ? When will this happen? We're learning about it in the book of Revelation during that thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And if the world is to be judged by you, Are you not competent to settle trivial suits? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, it doesn't mean we're going to sit in judgment. Again, that word means to rule, to govern over, to administrate, to manage. One of the responsibilities that God is going to give the saints of God one day is that we're going to manage the angels, you see. I mean, this is the destiny we have as God's children. This should be something that inspires and motivates us every day. Things that we get to look forward to as God's people. And it should be something that sort of stirs us to faithfulness now because this is what God is going to give us one day to do. You see, we're, we're sort of going to help in our way Jesus Christ to rule this 1,000-year millennial kingdom on earth. And so we're all going to have different responsibilities in different places. I hope God lets me stay in Phoenix, but we'll see about that. That's up to God. Don't send me to Siberia or Minnesota or somewhere like that. All right. Climate will be different then anyway. All right. Notice what he says. Do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge angels? Why not ordinary matters? He says, look, guys, God has given us his wisdom He's given us his word. He's given us his indwelling Holy Spirit. He wants us now to be able to start learning how to judge, how to rule, how to govern, how to administrate, how to manage things now, because this is our divine destiny one day in the millennial kingdom of Christ. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. With all the Old Testament saints, with all the church saints, and with all the saints that come out of the tribulation. So back to Revelation chapter 20. Now beginning in verse 5, he begins to transition to the next thought about this unique period in history. Notice he says, now the rest of the dead, who's he speaking about there? He's speaking about all the unbelieving dead of all time. So just stop there for a minute and try to wrap your head around that. All the unbelieving dead of all time, they will not be resurrected until the thousand years are finished. Okay? So with that said, the next big thought in John's mind is the resurrections, two of them, and their significance. Notice he says, this is the first resurrection. Speaking of the resurrection before this resurrection that he just talked about, which won't happen until the end of the thousand year millennial kingdom. Now I want to stop here for a minute and say this because this is important. This word in the Greek language doesn't speak of a succession of resurrections. In other words, 
a time word. It is a word that talks about a class or rank or order of resurrection. In other words, there can be more than one first resurrection. Does that make sense to everyone? Because it's not a time thing. It's a class or order. In other words, there can be multiple first resurrections, but they're still all first resurrections. And here's why. I'm going to cut to the, Because they all deal with believers being resurrected. And in a technical way, the first resurrection was Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are going to say, well, wait a minute. Weren't there people raised from the dead before Jesus? Technically, no. They were reanimated, but not resurrected. There's a difference. Because all those people that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament or in the New Testament before Jesus, they had to die again. How do you like to die twice? The rapture, people who are alive in the rapture aren't even going to have to die once. Some of these people had to die twice. So they were reanimated. Resurrected means they, you rise to never die again. So Jesus was the first resurrected, the first fruit. Okay? But then... They're, the saints are going to be resurrected at the rapture. Paul clearly teaches in 1 Thessalonians 4, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, we will be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. But all those church saints who've died from the start of the church at Pentecost in the book of Acts all the way through to the rapture, they will all be resurrected. That's part of the first resurrection too. And then you have the Old Testament saints. And then you have the tribulation saints. All those are lumped into the first resurrection. Okay? So again, to keep this straight, all believers, all those who have faith in Christ are part of a first resurrection. And they all will be resurrected before the millennial kingdom. Why? Because God wants his people in all generations to enjoy the millennial kingdom on earth. No believer at any time in history is going to miss being a part of Christ's earthly kingdom. But there won't be any unbelievers. Now please listen, this is important. There won't be any unbelievers enter the millennial kingdom when it first starts. But one of the things that makes the millennial kingdom most unique out of all times in human history, is that there will be tribulation saints who have not been killed or died or martyred during the, the tribulation period. And they will go into the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies. They won't be glorified like you and I. So, so get this. We're, there, there's going to be glorified saints, you and I, who will have our glorified bodies during the millennial kingdom, but there are also going to be saints who don't die in the tribulation who will enter into the millennial kingdom in their mortal bodies. And we will exist at the same time on earth. To read a lot about this, you'll have to read the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah more than any other books. They're the ones that talk about the specifics of this hodgepodge, if you will, of humanity. But during that thousand year period, those saints who enter in their mortal bodies will have children. And many of those children will grow up eventually not to believe in Jesus Christ. See, during the millennial reign of Christ. 
Now, that's one of the reasons why the Bible says during the millennial reign of Christ, he will rule with a rod of iron. Because there will be people who still, even when Jesus Christ is present on earth, and you and I are present with him, and we are ruling and reigning, there will still be people during that thousand years who resist his authority, who seek to defy him. And the Bible talks about this as well. So, that's what these resurrections are trying to describe. Now that I've thoroughly confused all of you, let's read on. Notice what he goes on to say. Blessed, verse 6, and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. Hey, it's a good thing to be part of the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, no authority No influence. So we are blessed by being part of the first resurrection. We are have power, if you will, or we are empowered in the first resurrection. And we have great privilege because notice what else? They will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Devoted, consecrated servants. See, the millennial kingdom, just like the eternal state in heaven, will be a place of service. Many people go, what are we going to do for all that time? We're going to serve. We're going to rule. We're going to govern. There's still going to be lots to do on this earth. And by the way, just again, not that the text really goes into it, but as you study the millennial kingdom the totality of what the Bible teaches about that, one of the cool things that we learn is also this. Because of all the great earthquakes and movements of the earth that take place during the judgments of God, during the tribulation period, the climate of the earth and the geography and topography of the earth are going to radically change back to where it's going to be uh, not paradise, Not totally back to, say, Eden, but it's going to be much better than it is now. That's why, again, if you read the Old Testament accounts of the Millennial Kingdom, God promises that in the deserts of the world, they're going to bloom. And and it's just going to be beautiful. And God is going to restructure even the water systems of the earth through the the judgments that he makes on the earth through the tribulation period to where there's going to be underground reservoirs everywhere again and there's going to be another canopy over the earth, which is why, again, during the millennial kingdom, people are going to live for hundreds of years again until they die, just like it was back earlier again. One of the most unique periods, if not the most unique period on earth, and we're going to be right smack dab in the middle of it. I can't wait. Hope I see you there. <laughs> and you're going, I hope you, I see you there. All right. Now, verse 7. The release of Satan and its purpose. Now, when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. Basically, it's a worldwide rebellion against God. And again, people are like, who's going to rebel? The mortal saints who go into the tribulation. Don't forget, because one of the things the Bible promises is that children, there won't be any 
child deaths during the millennial kingdom, people are going to live long lives, that the acceleration of repopulating the earth after the terrible judgments of the tribulation is going to be exponential. There's going to be an unbelievable explosion of worldwide population during that time. Okay? Just unbelievable. Just sort of like it was after the flood, if you will, and God started all over again with Noah's family. It's going to be much like that, even to a greater degree during the millennial kingdom. So there's going to be this earth filled with not only saints... Old Testament, New Testament, tribulation saints in their glorified bodies. But there's also going to be many, many people on earth who grow up during this millennial kingdom and who don't have a heart for God. And they don't want Jesus Christ to rule or reign over them. And they want to continue to rebel against his authority. And this is why God is allowing Satan to be released one last time to lead one last world rebellion. I'll get to why in just a moment. No, let's go on and look at it. Gog and Magog. Why is he using these terms? Because these are prophetic terms that always speak about the enemies of Israel. And notice that the gathering of all these enemies are actually going to come upon Israel and Jerusalem to bring them together for the battle. They are as numerous as the grains of sand in the sea. That's a lot of people in rebellion against God. During the millennial reign of Christ, they went up on the broad plain of the earth. This suggests a great extent and encircled the camp or the fortified encampment of the saints and the beloved city, which always refers to Jerusalem in the Bible. Now notice, there wasn't much of a battle or a war, was there? Because it says, fire came down from heaven and devoured them completely. And then God just takes the devil who deceived them. He was finally uh, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet we learned last week has been for how long? thousand years, right? They were thrown in right after the tribulation. So they've been there for a thousand years already. Now Satan, the last part of the satanic trinity, finally joins them, and they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Now, why does God, first of all, restrain Satan for this thousand years, and then why in the world would he release him? A couple of purposes that come to mind. First of all, one of the things that man in his faulty, flawed way of thinking thinks is that if man just lived in a perfect environment, where God ruled and reigned and where everything was perfect, man would be okay. Because man's primary problem is his environment. And if man was just placed in a better environment, man would do good. But see, the Bible teaches, and we've been learning a lot about this in the book of Romans, is it's not our environment that's our problem. It's our heart. It's our depraved human nature that we pass down from generation to generations from man can be placed in a perfect environment and given an opportunity he will still rebel against god's authority he will still defy god even after being put in a perfect environment and again can't blame satan Because Satan and all the demons have been removed for a thousand years. So man can't go, well, you know, the devil made me do it. Can't say that, you see. Now, when Satan is released, yeah, he's going to sort of 
mobilize them, but their hearts are already there. He's just taking advantage of the fact that their heart is already there. The other thing that this shows us is even after Satan being bound or chained for 1,000 years, does he change? Is he reformed? Does he learn his lesson and come out and go, you know what, God? Uh, I've had a thousand years to think about it. I'm ready to follow you. I surrender. No. And see, this is why, you know, some people question, why does it have to be eternal judgment? Again, this is not part of the message, so I don't don't want to take too much time here, but it's the idea that when, when people reject Jesus Christ, the only answer that we have, that it doesn't matter how long one stays in any kind of environment, apart from Christ, they will not change. They will not change. They cannot change apart from Jesus Christ. And therefore, he could have locked Satan up for a million years. He can lock Satan up for eternity. He can lock all these people up and send them into a Christless eternity. Will they ever change? No. Because the only agent of change in the universe is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can truly transform someone and change their way of thinking. And so that's another purpose of why God is doing this. He wants to show the irredeemable character of Satan. He wants to show even the depravity of man, that man placed in a perfect environment, given an opportunity, even after being seeing all the wonderful things that Jesus is going to do that thousand years, and how good it could be to be under his rule, they still, when given the opportunity, will rebel against Jesus Christ. Finally, in this passage, we have the reality of eternal judgment. Now let me say this. Let's remember, saints, Christians, our judgment, if you will, as a judgment, has already taken place. As soon as the tribulation is over and we are resurrected at the rapture of the church, or we are going to stand before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ to be rewarded, not judged. So we talked about Sunday. Who took our judgment? Jesus. He took our penalty. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So we're never judged for our sin, you see. We are judged, we are evaluated based upon our Christian life, our service, our faithfulness, which is why Jesus many times in the parables talking about judgment says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over these few things. Now I'm going to give you these many things to be in charge of in the eternal kingdom or in my millennial kingdom. So that's our judgment, if you will. That's already happened. That happened before we ever entered the millennial kingdom because that judgment is going to help, in a sense, base what our responsibility, role, and and all of that is in the millennial kingdom. So this judgment here is for those who are now being resurrected, all the unbelievers of all time that he talked about back there in verse 5. And all the unbelievers of all time will stand before God at what's called here in verse 11 of Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment. This speaks 
of the degree of importance of this judgment. It obviously, eternity is in the balance. Or I should say, their eternal sentence is, is in the balance because their eternal destiny has already been decided. They've decided it when they rejected Christ. Then I saw a large white throne and the one who was seated on it, who I believe is Jesus Christ. John 5.22 clearly states that the Father's not going to judge, but Jesus Christ is going to judge. Notice this. The earth and the heaven literally vanished from the face of him who sat on the throne. Can you imagine? We think, whoa, the earth, the heavens. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, is going to be so glorious that the earth and heaven are just going to vanish away as if they don't even exist. That's amazing to think about when you think about who Jesus Christ is. No place was found for them to be seen, to be present. And I saw the spiritually dead, the great and the small, standing. Interesting word. It means made to stand before the throne because they're about to be sentenced. The books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. Now again, this word life is very important here. This speaks about life in God It's the Greek word zoe. The only way we can have zoe life, abundant life, higher quality of life, is to have it in God. So God looks at the book of life, life in God, and He's going to see, is there names in that book? So the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to their deeds. Why is God judging their works? Because that's all they have to give. See, they didn't accept Christ. So they don't have his righteousness to stand before God as we talked about Sunday from the book of Romans. The only thing they have to be evaluated by is their works. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. I think it's just a reminder that, you know, all the the lost at sea, it's a worldwide, if you will, engagement here of people from all over the world of all time. And death in Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Death speaking of the material part of us, Hades speaking of the material part. Well, we look at it this way. There's three words the Jews used for for a description of death or the afterlife. Sheol describes the grave. Hades describes the afterlife, that there is life after death. And then Gehenna is the word that was used to describe, in a sense, eternal punishment or the lake of fire. It's literally a a term that was used in Jesus' day to describe the refuse or garbage dump that would be continually burning outside the city of Jerusalem. Those are the three words in the Greek language. And so it says, Each one was judged according to his deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The deeper, final eternal death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's the key. The judgment according to their works is going to determine the degree of punishment in hell or the lake of fire. 
But the only thing that determines whether one gets there or doesn't get there is, is your name written in the book of life. Notice their name was not found in the book of life. And so they suffer the second death, the full final eternal death and separation from God and from all that makes existence worthwhile. Horrible misery and loss. And this person, that person would be thrown into the lake of fire. Certainly we all need to ask, is our name written in the book of life? Do we know that our name is written there? That's the most important question we could ever answer as a human being. Do we know our name is written in the book of life? I want to, for just a minute though, turn this because he's talking here about eternity. And, and though it's hard for us to even wrap our minds around the eternal judgment of those who reject Christ. I want us to end tonight by thinking about the eternal bliss and blessing and all of that that those of us who know Christ are going to experience. And I realize in our finite humanness, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around forever. But I want to give you something to start thinking about that one of my Bible teachers gave me years ago that, that every once in a while I think about when I think about eternity. The sun, our sun, is about a million times bigger than planet Earth. If the sun was not a gas, predominantly, if the sun was, say, a granite rock that could be reduced to grains of sand, and every thousand years, a bird would leave earth, fly to the sun, and take one grain off of that sun every thousand years. When that bird is finished doing that, eternity just begins. That's how long eternity is. And, and that's why we need to have an eternal perspective on our life now and on how we live our life and how we invest our life. Because folks, even if we live to be a hundred years old, which is above the average age today, compared to eternity, forever, it's nothing. And yet people today, even Christians, get so caught up and distracted by the things of this world that one day will mean nothing and that will pass away. God says, live for what will last. Live for eternity. Lay up treasure in heaven. I want to leave you with this too tonight before we close. This song that we sing at Christmas time was actually written by Isaac Watts as a description of the millennial kingdom of Christ. Listen to the words of joy to the world. 
Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. And heaven and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and wonders of His love and wonders, wonders of His love. Now, there's nothing wrong with singing this at Christmas time. But folks, this song that we sing predominantly at Christmas time is a song describing what we've just talked about tonight. Jesus Christ coming to reign. And I want to encourage you tonight, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and your name is written in that book of life, one of the things that you have to look forward to, with, along with me, among many, many other things, is that one day we will be ruling and reigning right beside Jesus Christ on this earth. It's really going to happen, folks. It's really going to happen And you and I are going to be a part of it. And when we're there, we can look at each other and go, remember? Remember when we talked about that? It was so cool. Let's stand tonight. And let's end a little bit differently tonight. Let's end by singing another little chorus we usually sing at Christmas time. Oh, come, let us adore him. Won't you join me as we sing this together? Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you tonight for giving us Your promises of Your Word, the future glory that we will share because of You and what You've done for us. God, help us to be inspired and motivated by these prophecies and truths from Your Word tonight. Because Lord, we know that they're real. We know that they're trustworthy. We know that they're reliable. And God, we're going to be right there smack dab in the middle of it all one day. Ruling and reigning part of your divine administration on this earth. And Lord, when we get there, finally, to that 1,000 year period of time, it will be the most unique and fascinating time the earth has ever seen. Your word tells us that, that the animal kingdom will even be changed. That lions and lambs will be able to lie down together. That the natural animosity between animals and even mankind will be changed to where you promise us that even the babies that are born can, can actually play over the dens of, of asps and they won't be harmed in any way. God, it's going to be a time like no other time in human history. 
The prophet Isaiah says that, that the nations of the world will once and for all, until Satan is released at the end, they will once and for all lay down their weapons of war. And there will be no war for 1,000 years. There will be peace on earth. Lord, we thank You for the promises of Your Word. Help us to cling to them. Help us to live by them each and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.